Hello and welcome, or welcome back, to returned listeners to The Overview Effect with James Perrin, the podcast about taking a big picture perspective on all things environment, nature, humanity, and community. I'm your host, James Perrin, and I have something really special to share today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on Tekina land, and I'd like to pay respects to the Tekina people and all First Nations people of Lutruwina, which is just a beautiful place. I've been here in Tassie for the last five days, and if you've been listening to recent episodes or following me on social media, you'll know that I was running in the Tekina Ultra Marathon. This is a 51-kilometer trail through the pristine Tarkine rainforest, the largest temperate rainforest in Australia, and it was amazing. Brutal. The run was absolutely brutal. The course was super technical, lots of steep hills, lots of over and unders of fallen trees, bush bashing, heaps of rocks, heaps of mud, four-wheel drive tracks we had to run through river crossings it was something else but oh my gosh it was so incredible and I'm so grateful to have experienced it and I highly recommend anyone listening to come and do the run next year not just because of the spectacular running experience though because this was all for a really special cause we were running to raise awareness and funds for the Bob Brown Foundation to protect this amazing place, which is every day under threat of logging and mining. And as a community of about 120 runners, we've raised just over $180,000, which is awesome. So thank you so much to everyone who has donated so far. The link is still live and active in my Instagram bio if you want to donate more, especially perhaps after listening to this episode. But thank you so much for everyone who has contributed. The team and volunteers at the Bob Brown Foundation are really amazing. They're so special. Their passion and the community that they've built here is incredible. And I had the absolute pleasure of spending the night before the race, the dinner after the race with them. But the day after the race, I went into the Forest Defenders Camp and spent the day there meeting many of them, learning about their frontline actions and seeing the devastation that they're trying to stop. And this is what I'm sharing with you today. So I have two guests today. One of them is Scott Jordan, who is the Tekina campaign lead. And we sat down in the rainforest at the Defenders Camp, and he will take you through all of the details about what the forestry activities are doing to the landscape and its environmental impacts. He'll talk about the social political situation around it, the economics, or I should say the lack of economics of the situation and how this campaign is at the core of politics in the whole country. Most importantly, he shares what you can do to help the fight. And this is really important because it's not just a local issue. In fact, people outside Tassie have a really key role to play in this fight. So please listen to what Scott has to say. But first, someone to set the scene. Someone to tell us about how special the Tarkan is and to paint the picture of the destructive societal mentality that is leading to these sorts of activities in the first place. 
He's someone who has fought many environmental campaigns over the last few decades. He is really the grandfather of the environmental movement in Australia. He led the successful blockade in the Franklin River in the 80s. He helped establish both the Wilderness Society and Bush Heritage Australia. He co-founded the world's first Greens political party, then held seats in various state and federal houses. He really needs no other introduction. I'm talking about a very special human, none other than the man himself, Dr. Bob Brown. Thanks so much, by the way, for not just doing this, but for your, your lifetime of work. Honestly, it's really um, heartwarming, and I'm, I'm so, so very grateful for everything that you've done, especially oh. after reading your memoirs as oh, well. Thank you, James. I've been uh, very fortunate. You know, life can be tough at times, but in my case, it's got better as it's gone on, and I've never been happier. Here I am at 76, and being here um, at Waratah in the heart of the Tarkine in remote Tasmania with a hundred people going to run marathons tomorrow through that forest to help save it that's just so um, uplifting and fantastic Mm. and save it we will not yet but we will we'll get there we will absolutely and I want to I want to ask you a little bit more about the Tarkine and its importance but firstly I want to ask you if I can for a personal story so the, the, the podcast, the premise of my show is called The Overview Effect, which is the name given to this experience that astronauts have where they first shoot up into space and from space they look back on our Earth and they see our world as a whole and without any borders, without you know, everything interconnected and they describe it as this profound sense of connection to nature and they have this paradigm shift and a very emotional sense of connection and many of them come back to Earth changed um, permanently. Yes. And I wanted to ask you if you've had a similar experience or moment that has really shaped your view of our world. Well, look, I haven't been into space. Uh, and I was a young medical intern at uh, the Canberra Hospital in 1969 when uh, uh, the people first trod on the moon. And I remember coming away from intensive care or wherever and had a break and, and watched part of that. But to me, this planet's been fascinating ever since I can remember. And mm. the, the fact that it is just the, one, the only one in the universe, so far as we yet know, that has life and love and laughter. And, and this uh, extraordinary... You know, it, it fascinates me that here we are talking to each other and we're intelligent beings. And that potential was wrapped in the Big Bang... 13.8 billion years ago and, mm. and we know that because here we are doing it <laughs> uh, and I'm just uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, the the sheer uh, inability of us to comprehend what it is but then uh, the, the fascination with learning more and as we go we are learning more and I want this to go on, you know, this human joyride in the universe, which is really a way of the universe thinking about itself to go on into mm. the future. And, and um, basically why I've become, uh, from being a young doctor to becoming a 
environmentalists because uh, it, uh, the health of the biosphere which sustains us as individuals and as this now massive mammal herd of 8.5, no, 8 billion, mm. uh, it'll go on to maybe 11 billion mm. this century, um, consuming the planet beyond its ability already to replenish. Uh, it's, it's, it is fascinating to me, and yet I don't run into anybody, well, hardly anybody, uh, in my lifetime who doesn't want it to go well. Mm. But we're making a mess of it. And so that idea of the looking back at this one unified planet, uh, it's the only great concept we can have of ourselves. And we either sink or we swim. You know, we'll go to disaster, uh, all of us, or we'll mm. make it into the future. And I'm very much a Unitarian in that sense that we're all in this together. And uh, the divisions which we set in our society are taking nearly all our time and, and yes. effort at the moment. Yes. Um, how to get beyond that without a catastrophe prompting us into it or making things worse is... is the fascinating question of the moment. Mm. I love how you talked about your reflection as the universe thinking about itself. I just That's a beautiful way of putting it. I, I do want to ask you specifically about the Tekina. I wonder if you can quickly just paint the picture for us as to what makes it so special and what are the issues that your foundation and that everyone here are fighting against to try to protect it. Yes, James. Well, Tekina... Uh, the Tarkine is a half million hectares of wild country in the northwest corner of Tasmania. So if you can visualise the heart-shaped island of Tasmania, the smallest state in Australia, but off to the south, um, Tarkine is up in that northwest corner at 7% of Tasmania. And it's set uh, in quite extraordinary... Uh, it, it's in quite extraordinary natural condition, but it's under all sorts of threats. It's got one of the richest Aboriginal heritages. The Aboriginal people here, as elsewhere, were dispossessed forcibly, the Tarkina people, and, and where we are, we're inland from the coast, uh, the Tomagini people, were dispossessed within 30 years of the Europeans arriving here, even though they were cordial towards the European. And they were, they were a big, robust people. Uh, you know, the warriors that encountered the first... Europeans to land on the Tarkine coast here was six feet tall and um, mm. and yet they uh, were accommodating but that's not how things turned mm. out so here we are back here with two th missions one is to protect Tarkina which is includes the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia it's as big as the Daintree tropical rainforest up there in Queensland which has got world heritage wow. status and this one doesn't but should have and it's full. That forest is full. It's it's uh, full of wildlife, and a lot of it's extraordinarily rare. For example, Astacopsis guldi, which is a freshwater crayfish, uh, in the streams of the Tarkine, flowing to the west coast and north coast of Tasmania. It's the largest invertebrate. That means species without a backbone. In any rivers in the world. It's the wow. largest freshwater crayfish in the world. Now, if it was in the Nile or the Amazon or the Mississippi, we'd all know about it. Yeah. But it's here, 
And th- these creatures grow to a metre in length and six kilograms in weight, and they're fabulous. Wow. Uh, blue-shelled lobsters, if you like, and they're being grossly threatened by mining and logging because they need the little pebbles. Uh, it takes them seven years to get out of infancy, and they hide in the little pebbles. Well, you put mud into that river and it clogs up the pebbles. They've got nowhere to go, and they get eaten by everything. Mm. So uh, it's, it's a it's a big task we've got here, and there's Tasmanian devils, there's quolls, both tiger quolls and, and eastern native quolls. Uh, there's the giant wedge-tail, Tasmanian wedge-tail eagle, which has been recorded with wingspan. It's bigger than the mainland one. Wingspan's up to three metres across. Wow. So hold both your arms out, and then it's another arm's length again. Wow. Uh, the only pure white raptor that is eagle-like bird on earth, which is the white goshawk, goshawk it's found yeah. elsewhere in Tasmania, but this is its stronghold. Mm. Uh, masked owls headed for extinction. The swift parrots come through uh, here, and, and indeed the rarest uh, parrot that we have, the other migratory parrot to Tasmania, and they're the two of the only the only migratory parrots in the world come between the mainland and Tasmania is the orange-bellied parrot, and it uses the tarquin as a mid-feeding ground on its way down to the southwest of Tasmania each year, and it's down to less than a hundred in uh, wow. and. Um, we're trying very hard to save that. The so many good scientists are. So here we've got a cornucopia of nature, stunningly beautiful waterfalls, lovely little rivers, magnificent ferneries. In at this time of the year, autumn, the we're about to see after the next rainfall one of the magnific- most magnificent display of fungi, all colours <laughs> and shapes and sizes, on the forest floor, and so on. Mm. And uh, it's just wonderful to be part of saying to the miners who have mining leases over 95% of it and the loggers who are flattening and incinerating, and I mean bombing with napalm these forests uh, so that they won't grow back but they can put in their single species. Being able to stand up to that in our time is a great privilege because other people won't be able to come back and undo that Mm. if we don't protect it. So we want two things. Firstly, to protect it, it should be added to the World Heritage Area because Cradle Mountain, which is in the World Heritage Area, is just east of here. And secondly, is to return it to the Aboriginal community uh, in in Tasmania. It's public land. Nobody in, Nobody's private land is being threatened. Mm. And um, we're on our way. Mm. What do you see as the... I guess we're here, let's say all of that happens... Let's say we, we are able to World Heritage protect Takina and hand it back to Aboriginal custodianship. That's one example of one cause that we could potentially fight and protect. But I keep coming back to what I read in Optimism, your memoir recently, your chapter about Big M materialism. You know, that, that religion, the new yes. religion. Yes, and absolutely. Is that, that seems to be the cause of all of these symptoms, if mm. I were to speak in a medical term. Mm. And how do, we, how do we address that? Because I feel like that, if we get to the core of that and change our societal mentality, all of these things like deforestation, climate change, etc., will be almost superfluous. Well, first of all, we have to understand the situation we're in, which is that um, our 8 billion people 
are already using 170% of the Earth's living renewable resources. That is, we're using nearly double what the, what the Earth can supply, or does supply, which is available. And that means every morning we wake up to fewer forests, fewer fisheries, fewer fellow species, more mouths to feed, but less land to grow food, and certainly less wilderness and, and wild, wildness. And it's up to us to decide whether... We, and that's all fostered by a growth economy. And, you know, um, you run into a non-green politician who says we've got to do something about politi- uh, population, you're running into a rarity. Instead of that, in this century, in this last 20 years, we've had a federal government advocating bonuses for people. And, and there's a big worry at the moment that because immigration's fallen due to COVID that we've got to produce more Australians. There's going to be some incentive to have people make more babies. Now, that's to feed... That's not so that you can love and nurture little ones. That's to feed a growth economy mm. so that it will be more people to consume. That's why China's recently reversed its, its one... Uh, baby per couple policy to open it up to two or more because uh, materialism, capital M materialism, that is consuming more stuff, is the religion of the age. It's glo- it's global and it's subservient to the great god, capital G, growth. And mm-hmm. I don't know of a government yet on the planet that isn't at the, co- at the core of its economic policy and this is what governments stand or fall on wanting growth so let's have a three percent growth in the consumption of the planet already we're consuming twice its living resources it can replace per annum and the rest of the world catch up with us in australia at our consumption rate and you are going to see a 300 percent growth on what we're consuming now by the end of this century that's a worse problem than the actual numbers of people Mm. Uh, and your question was how do we turn this around well by talking about it first Mm. up but by not voting for the parties that are making the problem worse Mm. at the last national election in Australia 90% of people voted for parties that want more coal mines like the Adani mine more gas fracking that's methane into the atmosphere more oil wells uh, and uh, more logging of forests, which the United Nations tells us, and it's as plain as the nose uh, in front of our faces, is the best way of keeping carbon from going into the atmosphere is to keep the great old forests instead of burning them and, and having that all go up into the atmosphere. Well, we as a nation, 90% voted for more destruction, mm. not saving. So uh, there's something fundamentally wrong there. One of the problems, of course, is that advertising tells us to get more stuff. And we've got, we've got media, out, uh, which is uh, largely, not all, but largely, uh, climate sceptic has been, uh, uh, and uh, sees environmentalists as the corporations uh, who are making the biggest mess of the planet want them to see us as um, in some way or other obstructive mm. whereas in fact we're not we're opening the door to a new future yes and it's them who have set their uh, uh, you know they've set their all in the way of security for today's kids current projections today's children now at school 
by the time they're my age, will have at least 20% of their gross national income just dealing with the impacts of climate change. They're going to be poorer, they're going to be unhealthier, and they're going to be far more secure, insecure. Now, people don't want that, mm. but people vote for it. And there's the dilemma. And I, I don't, I'm not one of those who says it's all the politicians' fault. Uh, we, the people run a democracy yeah. and we've got to vote differently and we've got to put the environment up the ladder of importance instead of just what's going to be the best tax break or the biggest handout by which of the big part old big parties supporting more coal mines is going to give us at the next election i note just last week i read in one of the murder newspapers that the christian democrats angela Merkel's party is going down 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 in the polls uh in two state elections last week and um gee Oh, that's interesting. So I decided as there was nothing in the newspaper, well, somebody must be going up in the polls, I'd go and look elsewhere. It's the Greens. They mm. won state government in one of those uh, very highly populated German states and they're in balance of power and the other. Not re deliberately cut out of the reporting. And, wow. and you see um, the media is the message, as Marshall McLuhan put it, and uh, we, we have to demand a greater honesty in that portrayal and uh, in these days of, um, you know, so much um, information going through the uh, cyberspace uh, and no control on it, really. It, it's, it's a very difficult world we live in. But people are good-hearted individuals want the best outcome for the, themselves and their children and we're uh, badly in need of leaders who are going to come forward and, and I think uh, Jacinta Ardern for example in, in New Zealand is showing a lot of the thoughtfulness that's missing elsewhere in mm. the world run by Putin and um, Donald Trump's of the, uh, you know, yeah. uh, of the world but it's in the hands of we the people and it starts with how we vote and then it starts, it moves next to what we support and what we tell our politicians how we want. And on, high on my agenda there is, well, start by protecting the Tarkine. Mm. Wonderful. Bob, thank you so much again, not just for your time, but again, from the absolute depths of my heart for a lifetime of work. It, it's massively inspired me and I'm just so grateful for everything you've done and that I've had the chance to sit here and talk to you about well, it today. Well, thank you, James. And um, from where I sit, you know, life's a moving footway and I'm about to step off at the other end. We don't know when, but that'll come up. But it's wonderful to see bright-eyed young people concerned about the future and thinking about how we can change this and get ourselves back on track, stepping on to the start of that footway. So <laughs> that makes me uh, feel optimistic, uh, very carefully, but very determinedly optimistic about the future. Mm. Thank you. Wonderful, Bob. Thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again, mate, for doing this. I really appreciate it. No worries. So, Scott Jordan, thanks for your time. Thanks no for sharing your wisdom with us. Glad to be with it. So you are the Takina Tarkine campaign manager, is that right? Yeah, I'm the Tarkine, Tarkine campaigner with Bob Brown Foundation. Yep, awesome. And we're here in the Forest Defenders camp 
um, and I've had the amazing pleasure of being shown around and spending the day with, with you guys and it's incredible learning and hearing about what you're doing. So I'd love if you can help um, tell that story for the listeners and maybe just starting with painting the picture a little bit around um, why are you guys here? You know, what are the forestry companies doing and what are the practices that you're trying to stop? Well, in, in this particular situation, uh, last year in February, uh, loggers turned up here and they commenced clear felling this beautiful bit of ancient rainforest. And so um, our crew turned up, they'd been in four days, and so they'd cleared about five hectares in that four days. And and so you're talking an area two and a half times the size of the Melbourne Cricket Ground wow. in that two and a half days. And so we, uh, sorry, in that four days, and so we've arrived our folk have have locked onto those machines they've put up tree sits they've done what they can to immobilize that operation and prevent it from from logging and after four days the logging company decided to retreat and take their machines and go and so we successfully held this last year Um, we learned that this year they were planning to come back in and finish the job so they wanted to get another um, 35 hectares um, to complete this coop then there's another six coops further down the road that it's accessed through this coop and so we arrived here on the 28th of December and today's day 85 and we've we've had people over 250 volunteers in that time in this forest holding this space preventing that logging from happening mm. building on the work we've done in other coops over the last five years that have prevented the logging of, of hundreds of hectares of forest across the north of the Tarkine. Mm. Amazing, amazing. And so a coop, for anyone who's not familiar, is what, 100 or so hectares or is a zoned area for, um, for logging? It can vary quite a bit. In in the Tarkine area, we're talking a coop can be anything from 15 hectares through to 45. Yeah. Is normally the size in here because of the terrain. But in other parts of the state, coops can be anything up to 120 wow. hectares. And what are the, so these forestry companies, they're coming in, they're not just coming in and taking a couple of trees. Can you just tell the listeners a bit about what they're doing to the landscape and not just after they bulldoze everything but then what do they do with the the burning afterwards yeah well they're coming in they they clear fill this area um you know you've seen it today they call it selective logging but it's a it's a wasteland Mm. um the few trees that they've left standing seem to be what they've selected is what sits to stay and they will all be lost when the area gets burnt and so what we're seeing is is effectively this clear felling operation, which is then followed by a high intensity burn um, of a napalm type gel that's dropped either from a helicopter or from a handheld flame torch into these areas, and they burn it, which effectively sterilises the the um, seed that's in the ground from the myrtles, the sassafras, the celery tops, the blackwoods that that don't like fire. Um, and most rainforest species don't deal with fire very well and the wet environment means they very rarely have to deal with it. Mm. But the eucalypt species uh, respond really well to fire and so what they're doing is is effectively terraforming this landscape. They're removing the opportunity for rainforest species to recolonise and they're maximising the opportunity for fast-growing eucalypts to um, take over this space. They'll then fly over the area and they'll drop a single species of eucalypt, in this case, Eucalyptus obliqua, and they'll effectively create a a plantation and everything but name. It's a single species. It's 
it's um, they've sterilised everything else, and it's apart from having the normal rose you'd see in a plantation, it has every other characteristic of a plantation. And they do that because the eucalypt grows much more quickly, and then they can harvest that again in a shorter amount of time. That's right. This right. this rainforest would need a thousand years to return to pure rainforest and to have mature rainforest trees they're able to log. A, a eucalypt forest will grow much faster and they can they can be logging it. So once we lose these rainforests in here, they're not ever allowed to return. Mm. And well, one of the other things that really that really surprised me today was learning the the definition, quote unquote definition, if you want to call it that, of old growth or what is classified as old growth versus new growth. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that plays out? And I guess creates a bit of confusion out there it is it's, it's it's a really misunderstood term and and if i was to talk to the average person on the street about old growth forests they they will assume i mean forest that hasn't been harvested and and that that's a reasonable assumption for people mm. to have that's what i would think it would mean but unfortunately in the forest industry it doesn't just mean whether or not that area has been cut uh, areas that have been impacted by fire or by other disturbance um, including disturbances that happened before white settlement um, are enough to get those areas listed as regrowth forests it has more to do with the type of forest that's re-emerging and at the stage that it's at rather than whether or not it's been cut and so many forests that we walk into that are clearly ancient forests um, but if they've got a eucalypt overstory which shows they've had a fire in the last 700 years um, that that may not meet their criteria for old growth and so the public ends up very confused about what it is and what it isn't and and so in large part we've stopped using those terms mm. in our campaign and we refer to native forests because the reality for us is there's no place for any native forest logging anymore in a in a climate constrained world mm. and some of these practices clearing the this what they are classifying as new growth um, is actually being certified as sustainable in some under some banners. Is that right? Yeah. Look, we have have a global standard, and and while it's not perfect, it's the best standard we've got in terms of um, protecting forests and and having forest practices that are um, held to some scrutiny. So the Forest Stewardship Council has this global standard or sim- series of standards they apply. In Australia and in some other places around the world, governments in history have got together to bypass the requirements of that standard and create their own. And so in Australia, we've had the Australian Forestry Standard produced, which is effectively business as usual and will give you a stamp. And so um, it's being promoted in the market. You may see a a mark on timber being um, sold in your local hardware store. and It's got a mark that says responsible wood. what they're calling responsible wood is exactly what we're seeing out here. It's this destruction, it's the firebombing, it's the terraforming of the landscapes, it's the loss of all of that habitat. It's anything but responsible. It's simply um, spin and government and industry um, trying to bypass using the the more far more stringent and meaningful Forest Stewardship Council certification. Mm. <sighs> okay, it's devastating to hear that. Um... But where, once they do clear these forests, what are they doing with it? Well, unfortunately, 
very little of it is ending up as a sawn timber product. Um, we're, we're led to believe by the rhetoric that it's all about fine architecture and it's about beautiful coffee tables and, and craftsmen um, violins and, and all of these things. The, the harsh reality of it is that 65% of what will be cut down in this forest um, won't be straight enough to even go on a lock truck. Mm. Um, these are forests that are growing um, in the way they need to to survive in a rainforest. And so and a lot of the time that means they, they're they twisted, they've got a lot of character, they're beautiful to look at, mm. not much good in a timber mill. Um, and so 65% of it will be burnt on the ground as waste. Of what leaves here on a log truck, around 85% of that will go directly to the wood chip mill. And and that timber, that chip will end up being exported to China and um, used in either toilet paper, packaging, or um, now we're seeing it emerging um, that it's being burnt for electricity. And So it's actually, this forest that we're sitting in right now is becoming toilet paper, which is this ancient, beautiful, amazing, it's either becoming toilet paper or being burnt. That's it. That's largely what's happening. Oh my God. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a tragedy. Around 10% of it will end up at the veneer mill of Taran, which is the notorious Malaysian um, logging company who have, have done some horrid things in um, Malaysia and um, particularly in the Sarawak province. They're linked to the ruling um, governor of Malaysia through some various family structures and and there's some quite serious human rights abuses that have been committed as part of that, that regime and their their logging practices. Mm. They're tied up in the palm oil businesses and they're tied up in in those logging um, of, of both um, habitat for orangutan but also um, areas where people are still living tribally and being displaced by the actions of Taran. Um our company unfortunately went to these guys and and the government offered them um, money to come and establish themselves in Australia. So when reputable companies wouldn't buy a wood chip from these forests, we scraped the bottom of the barrel and found an overseas company with that was already on human rights watch lists, that already had an environmental record that meant they couldn't sell their timber into um, some of the Japanese markets. And we offered them money to come here. And then what we did um, was we allowed them to combine the timber from the mills in Tasmania with the timber from the rainforests in Sarawak. And because it was a combination, we allowed them to put an Australian forestry standard, the dodgy mm. government business as usual standard. We allowed them to put that standard on the timber so they could sell it into those Japanese markets. We were greenwashing human rights abuses and and incredibly um, toxic environmental practices overseas and here. <laughs> it It's horrific. And and anyone listening to this, it just it can't even fathom how this happens. I guess the, the line that people tow or the justification that people make is that this industry provides much-needed jobs to the region and economic stability. Um but that may not be the case either. Can you tell us a little bit about the the actual um, what the the native logging industry actually contributes to the Tasmanian economy? Well, the natives forest sector, their biggest contribution is debt. <laughs> so we are we are seeing um, this industry makes a huge loss to the taxpayer. Taran and the the 
wood chip mills uh, are doing great out of this. Um, we are effectively cutting down these forests at a loss to the taxpayer and then selling them at less than the cost of harvesting to these companies. And so they are going out, yes, they're providing jobs and they're, they're um, generating profits for themselves, but only at the, the fact that we are prepared to wear the loss. And so on average... Um, it varies year by year, and, and they use various accounting measures to try and hide those losses. But when you cut it down to what did it cost to cut the trees down and then how much did you get when you sold them, Forestry Tasmania, or Sustainable Timbers Tasmania, as they like to call themselves, are making around a $75 million loss every year. And then on top of that, we've got direct grants to the industry, we've got subsidies for freight, we've got a whole lot of other subsidy programs that support the industry. And so in effect, what we're doing is we're, we're pouring about $100,000 of public money into underwriting every $65,000 job. Mm. And so the reality here is that if it was purely a jobs argument, we're already paying more than the wage. Mm. We could have these people doing anything else that the community requires. We could have them restoring um, previously logged areas. There's a whole range of opportunities. Um, but this is clearly not really a jobs argument. This is about companies who've got some political sway um, in that native forest sector who are able to influence government and get their way. Mm. Um, at a time when we have a hospitals crisis, we've got a health crisis, um, we've got a homelessness crisis, and here we are pouring you know, millions of dollars into underwriting the logging of forests that the majority of the public don't want cut. It's devastating hearing that the companies have political power, but they've also done an extremely good job of convincing the general public that this is needed, right? And that has a... I was fascinated to hear the the battleground politically that the couple of seats in this region have on both a state and a federal level. Um, can you explain a bit about that situation and how this really, this whole campaign... Um, is right at the centre of basically who becomes prime minister. Yeah, look, we we uh, they they say don't they that all politics is local, and it's certainly true for us here in <laughs> Northwest Tasmania. And so we're sitting. The Tarkine sits in the seat of Braddon. Um, on election night, you'll always hear Braddon pulled up as which way is it going, and it's a good indication of who will be the government. Um, it's one of those bellwether seats. It's a very marginal seat. It changes hands quite um, often. Um, within Braddon, when things are so tight, um, we find that uh, the little community of Smithton in far northwest is a timber town. It's got two native forest mills. It doesn't have a plantation-based um, processor in the town. And so its voters... Uh, are very worried about what happens to the timber mills in those towns. And and they're not, of course, looking at what they could do instead or anything else. They know this is what we do, this is how we've always done it, and, and we're scared of what happens if we lose it. And so you can understand that they're going to vote on that issue. Mm. Um, but what we see, unfortunately, is that rather than presenting to them a different future and a pathway towards it, Labor and Liberal governments are both taking the easy path. They're going to those communities and saying, we will defend your your um, wood supply, we will make sure that native forest logging continues in this area and you keep your job. And so what we see is that um, whoever makes the most convincing case carries the vote in Smithton. And carrying the vote in Smithton, even by two, three hundred votes, 
can can be the difference between you winning that seat or not. Um, in the last federal election, while we all blamed Queensland for the result, the reality was we lost two seats in northern Tasmania, both in, in marginal timber industry-dominated seats. And so um, the Morrison government is in government today by a two-seat majority, mm. and they, they can be tagged back to Bass and Braden in northern Tasmania. Um, in a state election, it's a very similar scenario where we have um, our federal electorate boundaries match our state electoral boundaries, and we elect five members per seat. And so that final seat in Braddon in a state election is often decided on which way the timber workers in Smithton vote, whether they back Labor's policy or Liberal's policy mm. for no- logging our native forest. And it's not a question of do we log it or don't, it's about which party do they trust more to make sure we log it. And so what we have is both of those parties beating their chest to make sure that they win those seats because it can win your federal government, but generally if you win the fifth seat in Braddon, you're going to win the state election. Mm. And so it's, um, you know, the needs of the rest of the state or the desires of us to protect our forests or or the amount of money that's being wasted um, unnecessarily on this industry becomes casualties to the fact that if we do this as we've always done it, We'll win that seat. We stay in government. Mm. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. It's it's amazing to understand not just what's happening here in the forest, but the impact it has environmentally and politically um, on our on our country and the world. And I could do a whole other episode speaking to you about all of the kind of campaign strategies, the tactics that you guys employ, but I don't want to do that because I don't want to spill the beans. <laughs> um but I guess if we can leave the listeners with one thing, it's, um, I mean, w- you guys and the Bob Brown Foundation are doing amazing work in stopping or delaying activity as much as possible, which is vitally important. And I, I think I heard you say that, um, was it in the last five years, you've saved hectares, hectares and hectares from yeah, being destroyed? Yeah, pro- probably thousands of hectares of log coops that were scheduled for logging mm. that that have been either taken off the schedule or we have stood in the way and prevented them logging. And so it's a very um, sort of hard campaign to run. You're you're in an area that isn't always too supportive of Mm. of standing up for native forests and it's an area that, um, you know, the weather is pretty brutal, particularly in the colder months through through Western Tasmania. But... But it's a beautiful area. It's a great place to stand in defence of those forests. And we've had a huge amount of volunteers who've come to join us and and what we're doing works. And so when, when you see the results coming in and you know that those forests are standing because of the action you took, it's hard to, to not step up on the next one. Totally. And and it's amazing. And the, the stuff that you're doing on the ground is incredible. Um, and I also love that the foundation has this longer term play and understands the politics and the dynamics around how we can prevent this from happening again in the future. And so I guess if you can leave the listeners with a bit of advice as what they can do, because probably a lot of people hear this and care about these forests, but they think, oh, I'm not in Tassie, I'm not there on the ground, so it's not really my fight. But what can they do if they want to support 
Well, definitely people can get onto the Bob Brown Foundation website. They can get onto our Facebook um, page and they can follow the campaigns and there'll periodically be calls to action where we need people to write to a particular minister or we need people to, to send a message to a company or whatever it is. And those things happen very quickly at times and so being engaged on those websites means that you can take action when, when we, we call upon you. But the other thing people can do, of course, is is go and sit down with your local member. Um, your f- federal member of parliament works for you. They're your representative. And so um, if you go and meet with them, sit down with them, tell them that this area is a beautiful part of the planet, that the habitat for a native species is important to you. You don't want to see these areas logged. And when they get up and speak in the parliament in your name, you want them to be telling the world that this has to stop. And and that's very powerful. Um, a lot of people are, are afraid of doing that because they feel they don't know enough about the industry, they don't know enough about the, the politics, they don't know the science. But it doesn't have to be about that. It can be about, I am an elector in your, your seat and you as my representative um, are responsible for, for carrying my hopes and views into the parliament. And, and so don't ever be afraid to do that. And... And keep going and doing it. If they don't don't respond, turn up again. Tell all your friends to turn up. Keep turning up, and build that pressure. And so, when um, folk in seats around the country start seeing that their political future is tied to their um, action on the Tarquin, then we'll get to a situation where what happens in a little seat in northwest Tasmania doesn't determine the fate of this place. That people around the country are standing up and their local MPs are having to stand up with them. Mm. And so we we really need people all across Australia to be standing up and protecting. These are national heritage value worthy forests and they've been assessed as having world heritage values and so they don't just belong to those of us that live here. They belong to the rest of the world and, and we need everybody to be standing up. Mm. And this is a model that's worked before. I mean, Bob even says it himself that it wasn't until the the people of the mainland with the Franklin fight really understood and got on board with it that that's what saved it. So I love that you've got this this direct action model, but then also this um, this lobbying and this this political model to protect these areas in the longer term. And um, I think we've had the dinner call, so I don't want to keep you from from dinner at the camp, Scott, but I just want to say um, thank you so much for the day today and everything you've done for me in this campaign and, and sitting down on this podcast, but on a much deeper level from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for all the work that you've done. You've committed a lifetime to this sort of work, and I can tell how much you and all the team put into it, and it's really amazing to know that there are people like you out there doing this sort of work, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How was that? <laughs>